Sometimes you get lucky and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Hey folks, welcome to Twig. What are we on, 82? Geez, a lot of Twigs here. And we do have another full crew. We've got myself, Joe Kim, Mishka Katkoff, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. And in this week's episode, we will be covering one, 10 learnings from 10 years. This is from Ilka Pananen, Supercell CEO. We Did he covered. Say that right? I don't think he said that right. He said it horribly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you can correct it. But uh, we. No, go ahead. Well, we did cover Supercell in terms of the deconstructor of fun blog post, but now we're going to cover Ilka's own thoughts. Second, Game of War developer Machine Zone acquired by Applovin. Third, Valorant and Twitch build symbiotic relationship of success. And finally, Ubisoft says 11 games sold over 10 million copies in PS4, Xbox One era. How are you guys doing, guys? Good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Quarantine, week nine. Uh, yeah, uh, it's 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 getting to me. It's getting to me. Yeah, I have to agree, dude. This this shit's getting to me, dude. Uh, you know what? It's not staying at home as much, but the terror that you see when you go out to the supermarket—it's freaking unbelievable. <laughs> Enough's enough, dude. Open the shit up. Let's get back to work and get things moving again. You've got, you've got toilet paper for months, man. That's your whole background. Yeah. I know. Like, oh, I, I, have a, I have I have a great background, the COVID background. I'm sure. You've seen <laughs> it's uh, things things in Finland have been pretty much open all the time. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm moving so, to Finland, or Nevada, yeah. or Texas. Yeah, I'm I'm like Elon Musk, dude. I'm out. Take the red <laughs> pill. Well, they just started opening up the parks in LA, so that was nice. And then we thought we'd go to Griffith Park and be like, okay, let's just go do a hike or something. It's COVID Park. Just rammed. Just disgustingly rammed. <laughs> it was well, even, like, that was a big mistake. Okay, let's go back home. That was it. Yeah, even well, Gavin, Gavin's like loosening up a little bit, his rhetoric. So, new I think ev everything's up. loosening up. I just hope there isn't a resurgence, but we'll see. <laughs> anyway. Let's just hope right. the resurgence doesn't come before. Like, let's not talk about this bullshit. COVID. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody comes to Twig to hear about the latest COVID news. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They're like, what are these clowns talking about? <laughs> Moving on to updates. First update is Epic's House Party is now expanding beyond video chat to co-watching of live events. The company, I believe, last Friday launched its first experiential event series called In the House, which will feature more than 40 celebrities who will dance, talk, cook, sing, work out, and more over the course of three days. So I guess this must have already happened. Did any of you guys check it out or? No, uh, not really. All right, so if any of you guys checked it out, let us know how it was. But 
you know, as much as we've criticized Epic to some degree before on this podcast, we've also praised them for a lot, just to be clear. But this move definitely deserves some credit for being bold, innovative, and cool. I wish I would have checked it out, and uh, hopefully, hopefully it was a successful event. Adam? Yeah, Epic had a pretty amazing week. Yeah, so the UE5 demo. I don't know. Did you guys watch the video? I, I did. It was pretty cool. Oh that was God. pretty impressive, right? I love, I love the, I love the graphic porn, dude. Videos <laughs> during, <laughs> during seven next gen trillion consoles. triangles. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's so unbelievable because it is unbelievable because that's never actually going to happen. But it yeah. is, is yeah. a sight of almost. There were almost as many triangles as the U.S. economic stimulus. You know, <laughs> of course, of course, that's how Joe thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I was just impressed actually really by the lighting and how like everything was not oh, baked, yeah. right? Everything oh. was real time. Um, so yeah, that was great. I think that really kind of showcased what next gen looked like. Also, they talked about their new uh, engine. What was it like cross gen play kind of taking out a lot of the, the tech from Fortnite and sharing, um, which I thought was excellent, right? Like if, if more devs can think like that and have a, a, a an SDK that they can integrate with their games that they can build all that stuff out, that's a great next step. Eric, you're leaving. Yeah, I, I, I was, <laughs> I was going to say this is like a great example of a juxtaposition of poor and great marketing. Is that you saw like an hour long presentation from Microsoft that got nothing but yeah. boos and and hisses and how terrible it was. Not enough gameplay. Yada yada yada. These mother truckers put out a what two minute video about the a real demo on PlayStation Five, and now yeah. it's like lauded as the best thing ever, right? And yeah. It's all going to be exactly the same, right? Microsoft's console is going to run this thing exactly the same as, as Sony's console. And actually, Microsoft's console is better. But this is like the, the, the big thing with advertising, right? Or, or marketing is that you got to fucking execute on this stuff. And, and so Microsoft just failed, failed out of the gate, right? Yeah. Even though they've been communicating more and more and Sony's been really mum, you know, the, this whole time. And people have been criticizing that. They threw out this UE5 demo. Done. Over, dude. Game over for Microsoft. <laughs> I love it. Well, now we have our Tomb Raider clone that allows you to fly through the earth and fly through, um, what is it, like a bunch of um, Mayan runes or something like that. But they, they say that you're going to be able to download that potentially. Like that's actually a playable demo that you could actually bring, put on your PC or something. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Very cool. And um, by the way, I'm a, I'm a little bit jaded about this ray tracing thing. And I know people, PC guys are going to freak me. You know, I just bought this freaking $600 goddamn graphics card and i try ray tracing and it just fucking blows up my uh, my graphics right i I'm, I'm playing control actually control works okay it's it's some of the, some of the other games that just don't work ray tracing just makes this shit crawl but, really you uh, can play control with ray tracing yeah, Even yeah. With all of their their particle effects and all of their like explosive destructive environments that that seems to be optimized properly <laughs> wow okay yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's very cool. That's actually a cool, really fun. I really like those guys, uh, Remedies games. I don't know. They don't sell all that well, but they are, I, I just like the way they make games. But anyway, I've been yeah. playing Control. It was 30 bucks. I waited for it to go on sale. I did it. You bargain right. shopper. Come on, man. You can spend the money. Support Remedy. Yes. All right, moving on. Sorry. Anyways, moving on. I've got to go do a show, uh, shout out to Nordius. Uh, they're celebrating 10 years of Top 11. I'm a huge fan of this company. Uh, I think they've got some very, very smart people working with them. Yep. Um, and despite Miska and Joe just hating <laughs> on Spell Souls, <laughs> Top 11 <laughs> is a game that I actually really felt like carved out a great niche and really owned that category. 
and notably was one of the most mobile sports games out there, uh, even beat out things like FIFA. And I think it really recreates my love of fantasy sports and football management games on mobile. And I think the the only game that has actually recreated this kind of like static season scheduling and their sync bidding system. And I think it really separates it out from a lot of games and actually shows how, you know, things like engagement and monetization can move forward. And it's a 10 year old game. Um, yeah. So I've got it. Shout you remember when, when Zynga did the uh, the same kind of game? They did basically... Yeah, the uh, NFL version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, uh, it was not fun. No, it wasn't. But North, honestly, Top 11 is a great game. I've been playing it for yeah. years. Because you, you start from the hobby. bottom. Yeah. You start from the bottom. And it kind of works better in, in football or soccer, however you want to put it. <laughs> <laughs> it works better in, in football, yeah. Where, yeah. Uh, where where you dense yeah. given the actual league structures in Europe. Exactly. Multiple, multiple, multiple of tiers of amateurs, and then you go to half pros and pros and everything. So yeah, Nordius is, has done an excellent job. To be clear, we're fans. Of the company we're, or of, of the company. Of the company. Okay. <laughs> and of top eleven. <laughs> what, what, why weren't we why weren't we fans? Like what was why why Adam? Why I, I actually just, forgot what we said about spell <laughs> No, I just oh, make it funny because you constantly throw spell souls in the bucket of like a game that tried to follow what was it, Clash Royale? Yeah, yeah. I mean, which it did. It's I just it's a really like good looking game though. It's really really yeah. good looking though. So I don't like the hard lane approach. You know what I mean? I think the more yeah. no towers, nothing. But anyway, uh, anyways. On. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first article today: ten learnings from ten years. Uh, this was from the Supercell blog. Uh, Ilka did another blog post um, this year that outlined his perspective on what he's learned from the last 10 years at Supercell. Um, it's repeating a lot that has been spoken by and about Supercell um, and focused a lot on, say, how their culture breeds their best games. Um, my take, overall, these learnings are refreshing and pushing for a better game company overall. Um, but I think you have to take this with a grain of salt because these are uniquely success successful for Supercell which does not work for everybody. Um, you can only succeed with this if you are like them, willing to only go out and get the best talent. Your talent is fully aligned with your strategy. Uh, for example, like console teams, you have some amazing talent, but they don't want to build long lasting service games um, and are willing to take the risk of jumping into new genres. Um, this can't apply to new game teams that don't have the experience, don't have the runway, or don't have the investor trust or risk appetite. Um, and I think this is predicated on creating that multi-level company culture of trust over processes, which is really what Supercell is preaching. Um, Supercell was in a uh, lucky enough or really well-deserved enough position to find success after about two years. Um, I think it was four or five games. I think basically you can correct me here. Um, there was after Gunshine, Pets vs. Orcs, Battle Buddies, and then Heyday. Um, Rovio took 51 to build Angry Birds. I think King took about 10 years to find the success it had. Um, and I think many of our listeners here, including myself, right? Like it's taking a lot of games and a lot of time to get to that point that you can build up success, especially even considering the level of success that Supercell had. It's hard to retain trust and build for the long game or retain great people when you're just slogging through games that are just trying to keep your company afloat. And I think that's really the, the, the separating point. Um, none of this culture is easy to achieve, especially today. I think the autonomous culture can go wrong. 
Um, I, I experienced this a lot at Wuga where we had the very similar structure, um, but it's also seen in things like the Valve memos that came out a long time ago, where autonomous and direct feedback and teams um, that, that uh, basically are, are a lot more free flowing means that people within it need to be very competent and confident enough to be able to fight for their game um, and even ignore a lot of feedback when the entire company doesn't believe in it. And I think Ilka goes into this a little bit in detail on games like Boom Beach, um, even Clash Royale and Brawl Stars, where a majority of the company was actively saying that they did not think the game should be built. Um, the lessons in brief, which, I'll, which really promote this trust over processes, um, thinking long-term over, say, quarterly or short-term goals, um, which is definitely easier with trust from investors and executives. Um, the great teams are more important um, than great individuals. Um, Elka actually did a great GDC talk on this. Um, really, like you have to trust in your talent and make sure that full environment is there, uh, which is not always possible in all studios. Um, hire slowly, stay small, um, and culture is what you do not your PowerPoints, which I couldn't agree more. Um, and fighting against becoming a reporting culture, I, th I found really, really nice. Uh, avoiding creating a culture where that people basically spend more time on reports of their own games or other games instead of actually making games, which is literally 90% of my job. So amen to that. Um, the two points that stuck out to me that I'll focus on, uh, one is fear of failure. Uh, don't let fear of failure guide what you do. And the second one was failure creates processes and rules. So the fear of failure, uh, this is really what I think separates Supercell from the rest of the pack. And what is their competitive advantage? They're willing to jump headfirst into brand new genres, willing to spend the dev cycles and production in order to actually figure out how to make a game work for mobile. Um, why, even when like Supercell has big gaps in hits or declining revenue, you never really can call them out because they can always come back with a hit. This is a lot easier for them now, given their financial uh, stability. Yet, when I look around the mobile marketplace to a number of other financially stable companies, ones with a very, very strong live game, most seem to actually become more and more risk averse than they were pre-success. Their success actually leads them more towards heavier processes, which leads them down paths that make them sound, that like leads them down paths of creating games that sound smart on paper, over actually just creating a great game, which leads down to games that can't perform the same way as the original hits. Um, and secondly, failure creating processes and rules. Uh, I see this a lot, um, especially in consulting and thinking back on my experience uh, at many of the companies that I work at. Anytime that there's a failure within a company, the, the attitude is let's make sure we don't make this mistake again and let's add a whole bunch of rules to counteract that. So best example are things like a game comes out and has way too high CPI, so let's add CPI testing earlier on in the process. We launched a game, it turned out the economy was too shallow. So let's, you know, build huge economy simulators and make sure that we can prove that our economy is as deep as possible. Um, this stuff just adds up over time and it becomes a slippery slope of, of um, uh, basically processes, heavier processes. And it's always interesting to look into different companies, green lights, and typically every rule in it is really a response to a game that failed. Um, the reality of all this is that the larger a company gets, the more failures and download, downturns a company has been through. This results in more of that trust between investors, executives, and game teams eroding, um, especially as the game uh, company gets larger and larger. And I think that eroding trust translates into heavier processes. Um, Supercell is right to promote a trust-based approach, but for most companies, this ideal is not exactly feasible. 
finding the right balance between trust and processes is a uh, process for most companies. Joe? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to be clear that I love what Supercell is doing. I, I really think that Ilka, you know, is it's, it's great for Ilka to be writing about this stuff, but just a, a comment in terms of trusting teams. Okay, you're smiling. This isn't a shit. JK, JK, you always start every supercell thing you start off with like the highest of high compliments. You can next time just try to end it with it. It just goes right into like a disgusting rumor. Okay, let's see. I know. No, no. But the 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 only comment I have is really about this point around trusting teams. And so the the point I want to make on this is that you as a game studio to I think you do have to, to your point, keep your situational context in mind, but Trusting teams actually requires that the more difficult part, I think, is knowing the right team to trust and how do you actually put that team together. And so, like, yeah, if you have, so for example, the Santa Monica Studios trusted the God of War team to make that game despite the budget, despite delays, things like that. There are going to be teams that you want to trust, but if you trust the wrong team, you can literally bankrupt your studio. So that's the part I think that a lot of game studios are going to have a difficulty with, like executives knowing how to evaluate the right people for that game studio and to organize and put that right team together. And the second aspect is in terms of this notion around, oh, well, we shouldn't have any process, just trust the team. So I want to push back on that and say that that's actually kind of bullshit. Now, not that, so yes, companies generally today, most game studios today are over-processed. There's too much formality. There's too much ceremony. There's too much of putting one rigid fixed process in place. But there's also this concept, which I call the observer effect. And really what, what I mean by that is that if you have no process, meaning that there is no observation or measurement of the team, that that's actually going to also lead to a worse result. That in my own experience, I kind of call this uh, the performance equivalent to sort of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or the Schrodinger cat quantum physics experiment where, and the point I make with these physics concepts is that the point of these things is that when you measure something that impacts the result. And in, in my experience, if you don't measure, if unless there's an observer and some type of process, that that will also lead to bad results. And so I think Jeff Bezos actually makes a really good point about this, which is like not to be a slave of your process. There has to be something there. You have to measure, you have to observe, but it doesn't have to be rigid. It can be light ceremony, less formality, and it certainly does not always have to be the same thing every single time. You have to take your situational context in mind. Mishka. Okay, thank you. I like how, how strong you were in your opinion. <laughs> okay, Eric asked me to be really uh, much shorter. I, I know I take too long of a comment, so that was very good constructive feedback. So overall, I really love this type of communication strategy from, from Supercell because it takes away uh, the highlight from the money, which is always the case with this company. It's like how much money they made, how much money is this one game making, how much money do they make per person. And it's, uh, it's a little bit of a tiresome story, especially if, you know, the trajectory is not going towards the, uh, to, towards up always. And that's, you know, it, whatever. Um, and, and this really put the, uh, the perspective on how to build a successful company culture. And this type of piece is really fantastic for hiring because you can kind of read this and you're almost amazed. Like, is this true? Like, are, are places like this truly there where, where, where they focus on the most important thing, which is making great games? Um, so 
I think it's it's once again a, a fantastic positive PR piece from 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 Supercell. And and what I mean PR is is you know it's public relations and and it's professional communication because thing is <laughs> when you when you read these type of things and all the game companies do it, it's actually bad for everybody else except Supercell <laughs> because uh, because in the companies people will start referring to these like super unique practices that are used at supercell what everybody's trusted we can make creative teams we can take our time and and you know it's truly a wonderland and the people who read these often fail maybe to understand that even though that this is a blog post it's it's still professional company communication this is not you know written on ilka's personal blog and um it's not something that that somebody overheard from a some supercellian who was a little bit of a drunk or had one drink too many and then they're hearing it directly from the source it is it is professional communication but at the same time I'm, I'm not saying that this isn't true it's don't you know don't take it in the wrong way either it's Ilka is truly perhaps one of the best if not the best ceos uh, game company ceos out there he's built a, a, a you know such a great company culture that it's even hard to believe that it's really true. And, you know, overall, I think this is totally, absolutely uniquely great. I don't have anything bad to say. I think it's, it's just fantastic. And, and from everything that I know, it's, it's pretty much the true. Um, one point though, cause we have to always find something to talk about. So maybe one, one out of the all 10 was hire slowly and always raise the bar. So it was when thinking about, like I'm quoting, when thinking about whether you should hire someone or not, try to imagine the average quality level of people in, at your company, then ask yourself whether the new hire would increase that average or not. Only hire if the average will increase. So this was a really interesting rule that they adopted early on uh, by, by, by their uh, then uh, head of board or somebody. Anyways, uh, and I think this is a great rule, but if you start thinking about this rule on a long term, so it's a 10 years since, since, you know, or eight years that they've been using it, you know, what's the situation after years uh, for, so let me take it back. What's the situation for those who have been in the company for years? So according to this law, the ones with longest tenure then are of the lowest quality, right? Because if you always hire the ones who increase the, uh, the bar, if their average is always higher than the, the ones with the most amount of social currency who have been the longest in the company are probably not the strongest individual anymore because you've always kept on hiring better and better. And at the same time, when you take it into account, the way uh, things usually work, especially in the Finnish law structure is that you, it's much easier to, um, or European law structure, it's much easier to get rid of the new ones rather than the, the old ones. So that means that the people who are of less quality according to this rule, are, are the ones who are the safest compared to the new ones that are always coming in and they're always at the highest bar. Of course, this is just talking as a law. It's, it's, you know, it's probably totally different, but it, it is a, it's a, it's an interesting approach of, of always raising the bar by the people you're hiring. But, but is the, are you also like letting out the ones who have, who are not anymore according to the new bar of average that you're setting? So other than that, I think it was fantastic blog post. So my, my opinion on this whole thing is not very popular, but I'm going to say it one more time for the record. By their own financials, when they were acquired in 2016 for almost $8.6 billion, they were making $2.3 billion and a billion dollars in profit. Today, in 2019, they have declined 
2% on revenue and 43% on profitability. So in all objective measures of finance and valuation, they have lost 43% of their value since they were acquired by Tencent in 2016. So when you're looking at how they approach game development, I think it's very, very, you know, dubious at best in order to to replicate their model because they clearly have not been able to maintain the valuation that they were acquired for back in 2016. So I just be very careful about applying some of their methodologies um, when you're looking at uh, running teams like this. So anyway, moving on. I don't know. You can you can <laughs> no, also talk about that. You can't just move on from that. I mean, they are <laughs> highly profitable, highly successful. So even though if you've declined, like you were at the Mount Everest and now you're, I don't know any other mountains. Is K2 like lower than Mount Everest? <laughs> anyway, so so you're still extremely profitable. You're, you still have a very small company in terms of amount of people. And sure, even if you have declined, but you're still at the top of the game. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not only growth numbers. You still have to look at the overall numbers as well. Well, I, I'll tell you, look at the overall numbers. They lost 43% of their value over the last four years. <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? <laughs> yeah. Like if, if EA did this, their stock would be in, at $10, right? Or, I mean, they would, it, would, it would be an absolute debacle, right? If this were to happen to any company, you know? So... That's true. And I, that's I just, why I think they, they have that luxury and, I, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm so happy that they're there to create amazing experiences, like I said last, last week, but this is not a sustainable model for running a business, right? I mean, it's really not. I mean, clearly it's not, right? So anyway, I, you know, more power to them, right? If they, you know, they, they can do whatever the hell they want to do, right? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them. But uh, that's just, be, be, buyer beware. Yeah, right? it's good that they're not public then. Exactly. True. And then, and, and, yeah, and it's good that Tencent's not reining them in, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they would have that luxury, right? Because they clearly overpaid for the asset at that time. All right. Let's talk about Machine Zone then. So big news of the week was actually that Machine Zone was acquired by AppLovin. And the acquisition is still waiting on approval. And the cost to AppLovin has not been disclosed. Uh, I think I read some, some rumors of about $500 million. 300 million, JK, you know about this, right? You're nodding. Somebody reported that it was 500 million based on rumors. I forgot which publication reported that. Fake news, probably CNN. You get, that's that's <laughs> no, a that, stretch. No, that valuation, yeah. no, valuation makes sense given their run rate. Yeah, it's, it, it makes sense, JK. Anyways, let's go through so this. Is, so MZ is worth two and a half times, Fox next. Let's go through this. So the two firms will begin working cl closely together now, and there are plans, this is actually interesting, for AppLovin to move its headquarters to Machine Zone's Palo Alto studio, just a mile away from its current premises. So my key takeaways, I, if we talk about the 4X genre, the, the 4X has six unique elements, and 4X like, you know, explore, expand, exterminate, uh, exploit, Anyway, so it is the biggest subgenre of mobile with about 3.3 billion in net purchase, net revenue, net purchases to in last year, with a growth of 16% in a year. It is dominated by Chinese publishers that take about 75% of all genre revenues. It has a very high entry barrier as these games are costly to build, hard to run, and very expensive to scale. 
it has a very low level of concentration due to each game relying on a relatively small player base. The top of this genre is evolving as new games enter the market with new themes and gameplay mechanics. And these new games are reaching the top positions in top 10. So about 20% of the top 10 games are constantly changing. And the final point is accessibility has become the name of the game. We see through games like Star Trek Fleet Command from Scopely or Rise of Kingdoms from Lilith. Uh, these games have blasted themselves to, to top 10. And the way they've done it is that they've actually connected with new audience instead of trying to only acquire audience from other Forex games. So how does MZ fit into this competitive environment? Their net revenue last year was about 230 million in net revenues with only 12 million installs. At the same time, when we were looking at down numbers, inside the years, the revenues were down by 34% and installs were down 55%. And when we look at overall the competition in this category, MZ went from controlling almost 90% of the market to having a slice of about 6% and declining. So the company was once dominant uh, and it perfected the performance marketing at scale. It also aggressively attacked all newcomers and it was reported that they would always sue anybody who was making anything even looking like a forex game um, but at the same time they they experienced stagnation of both their product as well as their marketing they've inflated the economies of their legacy titles so uh, both mobile mobile strike and game of four and you can see how those games really plummeted inside a couple of months and they basically opened up the door for Chinese publishers who entered the market and started scaling because, you know, quite frankly, I don't think they were able to, to sue those new, new publishers coming into the market. It's kind of, you know, fruitless to send your cease and desist emails to Beijing or Shanghai or Hong Kong. So the CPIs went up, they couldn't catch up, and they lost their competitive edge at the same time. Their last game, which was the, um, I forgot the name, but it was basically RPG meets 4X, not a crazy yeah. Crystalborn. Crystalborn, yes. Uh, it, you know, it failed to make its mark. So the question is, why did App Love and buy them? And I want to give a shout out to John Wright from Luna Labs. He posted this on LinkedIn and, and I agree to most of his points. So when you think about why they bought it, you have to think about people, portfolio, and IPs. So, but with this acquisition, App Loving gets data for about 100 million users worth of data for mid-core strategy and RPG games. Together with that uh, and their extremely large casual and hyper-casual portfolio, they're pretty much missing only casino and sports games. And then they have all the mobile ecosystem marketing to data. Um, AppLovin can revitalize machines portfolio. That's what, what John said. I doubt it because we've seen some of the games like Ebony trying to push uh, through marketing and these games like six, seven year old, when they try to make any kind of push, um, that doesn't really happen. They're just too old of a games to, to compete in the modern marketplace. But at the same time, um, John said that they can use these IPs for more mass market appeal versions. So he gave an example of Ketchup's Prince of Persia. I really doubt that they're going to make a hyper casual version of Mobile Strike or... What? Um, <laughs> I know, but, but, no I know. But instead, instead, what I think will happen is we'll be seeing more Forex game from other app loving studios that they may acquire. And, and, but with having this instruction and, you know, who knows, maybe you can do um, game. That's, that sounds like a game I'd try or mobile strike too. Anyhow, uh, what is really happening is app loving is, is now 
according to John, and, and I agree with this, it's truly vertically integrated mobile first company. It's not anymore an ad network with a side hustle or a, or a hidden hustle of a puzzle game or, or a hyper casual studio. It, it is now a, a powerhouse in, in mobile. And I think it will keep on growing with, with this added data. So that's my take. Eric Kress. You too know, long, too short. <laughs> I, after, after giving you feedback of keeping it short, now I've like <laughs> written like six pages of notes. So I'm like, uh, so I'm really being a hypocrite here, but I, I'm going to try my best to do this as short, short as possible. So one big caveat here is I don't really know much about these companies as much. I mean, Machine Zone, I knew a lot about back in the day, but my information is pretty old. But App Levin, I know squat, right? I don't know these guys. Uh, I just did a little bit of look, looking into them and then lots of... Uh, you know, rumors and stuff, but I'm in the realm of speculations, you know, based upon their activities, backgrounds, pedigree, relationships, et cetera. So I am uh, caveating all this. Um, so basically they are saying that they're going to acquire these guys for about 500 million. Um, to put that in perspective, back to our valuation issues around Supercell, their last round was in 2016 and it was claimed that they were worth $5 billion at that time, right? And there was rumors that they were going to go public around that time at a $10 billion valuation, from what I remember. And in 2018, and this was after things started to fall apart, uh, they, were, they raised $720 million from JP Morgan, Anthos, and Menlo Ventures. Ouch. So they basically lost all of that money, more or less, um, in, in, that, in that investment. Uh, in 2016, they had $1.1 billion of revenue, growing at 83%. And between 17 and 18, they dropped 63% to 333 million, right? So a little bit worse than uh, Supercell. Um, so it was catastrophic. And, and my understanding, it wasn't really that the games themselves, well, I don't want to speculate too much on that. But what I will say is that they basically created an inflationary thing that basically destroyed the economy and pissed off all their whales and the whales just left in droves. That's kind of, I think, what ended up happening. And Frankly, the same thing happened to Kabam. So anyway, so is this a asset worth buying is the question. And, you know, they're kind of the run rate right now is Final Fantasy is doing about 8 million a month. Um, and then Mobile Strike and Game of War about two to three. World, of World War Rising was their latest game that didn't do much, but it's doing about 2 million. So they're basically looking like a 200 to $250 million run rate, right? Which ain't bad, right? I doubt they're very profitable because of how much money they spend on, on marketing for these types of games. But nonetheless, like two times revenue makes sense to some degree. Um, unclear as to whether their product and technology is contemporary. You know, every time I look at these games, I kind of think they're all the same, but I'm sure that is not true. So I will ask, probably get some flack for this, but, um, but uh, I do want to understand exactly why these games, the contemporary games, things like, you know, Game of Thrones and King of Avalon is different than Mobile Strike and, and, and Final Fantasy. But uh, that's another discussion, I suppose. Uh, for the team, you know, it's unclear who they have left. They have about 500 people. You know, I look, I look at their, like, exec team, and it looks like, you know, Kristen Dumont was more of a financial type person, you know, more like a transition CEO that stayed for the last five years. <laughs> she cut a ton of people. In 18, I don't see she has much operating experience outside the machine zone. Um, and it looks like they have some engineering talent. But most of the exec teams seem to be finance and lawyer types, from what I can tell. Probably people that, the investors that lost their ass 
put in charge uh, to help with the transition, right? So I don't know. It looks like overall this is going to take quite a investment from AppLovin and their financial backers, KKR, um, in order to kind of grow this from here and, 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 and make a go of it. That's kind of my thinking here. And then for AppLovin, I don't really know much about these guys, but I look at their exec team and none of them have any gaming experience really to speak of with the exception of working at AppLovin. So, I mean, I guess I suppose they have some, some experience there. Uh, I think for me, like they created Lion Studios to help build, you know, like the hyper casual stuff to support their network, I suppose. And, but I think the relationship with Firecraft was the one that kind of, got people a little bit freaked out a little bit because basically Firecraft created Matchington, which copied almost exactly Playrix. Not only, not only from a visual style of the game, but actually the, all the ad creative as well. Like it was just so insanely similar. And so I think it, there was rumors around how they used, uh, perhaps they used data to inform their decisions on how they marketed and designed this game. And, but I really don't know much about that. So anyway, I, well, here's what I think. I think fundamentally these guys are being backed by KKR and KKR is freaking gangster, right? If they, they have almost unlimited funds to do whatever the hell they want in any business that they want to do it in, right? And so with this kind of support, they could do whatever they want. They can acquire what they want. They can hire whoever they want. And I think at the end of the day, you know, these people, there's some speculation that these guys want to be the next Tencent, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but you know, they have insane amounts of deep pockets and they are aggregators and I don't think they're done. You know, I think they likely will continue to acquire and be competitive against companies like Stillfront and be an aggregator in the, in the space and invest where it makes sense and, and try to grow this business. But again, I think they're starting off with, um, they got a lot of work to do and they need to hire some people that actually know how to make games and to run studios. Like that's the key, right? There's people that know how to run studios and manage studios. So that's kind of my long take. But um, again, I am in the, in the realm of speculation here because I really don't know the players here. So what do you think, JK? Yeah, so from my perspective, I don't want to comment too much on this. I hear, like you, I just hear way too many rumors. I prefer to stay away from this story. So, But I will express a few opinions in terms of some of the things that I think are safer to talk about first is that it does feel the NZ engine is pretty dated, especially when you look at the games. I think the engine in another age provided a lot of advantage, uh, advantages other games didn't have in terms of scale and handling events and sales and shit like that. They were also very early in terms of developing new capabilities. Like I believe they were one of the first companies that I knew of that created like a thin client, like a Lua-based thin client in order to bypass Apple and do dynamic code updating and stuff like that. However, I would argue that today their engine most likely would be a liability. I don't see a reason you wouldn't go with an Unreal or Unity and move, to, move more towards an ECS-based type of architecture or something like that. I think it's a huge tax that could be going into features in terms of working so much on the engine. Uh, the second point is that the word on the street, maybe a safer thing to talk about because it seems like a lot of people are aware of this, is that uh, app level were already working on a forex game that may already be in a soft launch country or two and if true you can see why they had interest in fox next or mz 
And to the point that Mishka made, uh, certainly from a data perspective, that App11 is a company that's because they own an ad network, having that data, you know, being able to create lookalikes off the old uh, game of war, user base, things like that, that's all going to be valuable. But I'm going to go ahead and say, though, that I don't get the deal from a product perspective. I can see it from a financial perspective. But, and I also would disagree that, I mean, who knows? whether the rumored uh, purchase price of 500 million is correct or not, but it does sound too high based upon some of the rumors around the Fox next purchase price. But, you know, who knows? Maybe that's like 200 million purchase price with 300 million earnout and dollar right, in cash. Right. I mean, we, we just don't know, but I, I would say that this type of approach does to me is kind of the exact opposite of the supercell article in the sense that this is clearly, it feels like this is, a KKR special. There, this is a financial transaction. They're trying to dress this thing up because this Applemus is going to go public later this year, and so they're just basically putting the pieces together to allow this this thing to go public. Any other thoughts? No, I mean I, it'll be really interesting to see what the follow up is in terms of how they do it, or do they have enough now to go public? I don't know. I think in, in this environment, I mean there is a window here because of how well popular gaming is right now. And their pro profile growth might help them. It's just a question of really what the profitability is. Yeah, I, th I think the, the only, the only not a caveat, but, but the only thing that, that it makes this a little bit more interesting is the whole matching to mansion scenario where, where you know, there was like a Firecraft studio, which was in that coffee shop in, in San Mateo, <laughs> which really didn't exist. And then it was actually the, the Magic Tavern studio out of Beijing that did that game. And... It was it was just such a weird time. It was 2018, right? It was a really really weird time where where suddenly this puzzle game out of San Mateo coffee shop became this biggest thing ever, and nobody worked at that studio, and it didn't exist. And and then and then when Applevin was in the end like behind that, it like that whole debacle really created this sort of a I don't know weird mystery maybe behind Applevin. Right. So who knows? Yeah, and just for people who are interested in App Levin, I did write a Medium blog post. And by the way, it's kind of crazy because I literally wrote the Harry Potter of articles on App Levin because typically, like the read ratio on Medium is like somewhere between ten to thirty percent. This is like over fifty percent. <laughs> so it's crazy how much interest there is in App Levin. That's that's uh, true because the post when when we <laughs> when we wrote about uh, matching to mansion, you won't believe the truth, which was yeah. a nice title. <laughs> That was the most read post in, I don't know, was it 2018? Like, it got monster reads. <laughs> so, nice. it's... So what's yeah, going to be so, the clickbait title of this podcast? It's going to be competing oh. Supercell and Applevin. Man, the clickbait, it's going to be Supercell crazy. versus Applevin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we should first. do. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's actually a really great one. Adam is becoming a clickbait king of himself now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Do you, right. do you guys know any of these guys at App Lovin', like Raphael Veeves, the president of Lion Studios, who literally yes. has no video game experience at all? Like, running so I've met some of those guys. I will say that, and I actually talk about this in my App Lovin' post, but I actually really like a lot of the guys I've met at App Lovin'. Their sales guys are literally some of the most charismatic guys that you will, you could ever meet. I like them personally, but there you could tell it's this very scrappy, very 
I mean, they, they go for the kill. Yeah, here's, <laughs> it that way. Here, here's my instinct on this. If these guys convince KKR to make these kind of investments, these guys are freaking gangster, dude. They're going to be like... <laughs> no, they are gonna, gangster, dude. They're going to do so whatever they want, they, man. They're going to go out there and they're going to acquire whatever they want. They're just going to strong arm people and they're going to just... So here, here's, the other, here's the other thing about AppLovin'. So some of the smartest guys I know are saying that Adam Faroe, the Apple 11 CEO, is the smartest guy in the industry. So, okay. I mean, right. they, they, they got a lot of respect. Well, the CFO and the president is basically an ex-KKR guy. So I'm sure he's freaking ruthless, man. I, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Because yeah, I, I don't think you guys know, maybe, I don't know if the audience really knows much about Silicon Valley and these you know, huge maybe. banks like TGV and, 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 and KKR. These guys are just insane. Like, you know, they, they don't give up. Yeah. Anyway, so... They so got great in the top 10 company next year. This is like, if, if you like juxtapose this with like Stillfront, right? Who they're like the nicest people on the planet, right? They, they have resources, but nothing like this, nothing even close. So uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting uh, to see how it all, uh, it's something to watch for sure um, as an industry person. After the break, Valorant and Twitch build symbiotic relationship of success, and Ubisoft says 11 games sold over 10 million copies. So make sure to stick around, and we will be right back. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. But what is attribution platform? Why do we need it? And why is AppsFlyer the best in the business? Brian Murphy, head of games at AppsFlyer. Can you answer these questions? Sure. Uh, right now, marketing budgets are being impacted. Uh, so the need for strong attribution and measurement partners is critical. Marketers should be focusing on what's working best. So mobile measurement and attribution partners who help provide uh, those insights are even more important. Mobile attribution platforms determine which campaigns, partners, and channels delivered each app install, and marketers rely on these insights to measure and optimize their marketing performance for both user acquisition and retargeting campaign. With one trillion in-app events measured each month, AppsFlyer is the most robust technology platform and mobile measurement partner for any game developer to distribute and engage their application to a worldwide consumer base. Our scale and data insights provide customers with unique ability to make informed marketing decisions. In short, AppsFlyer gives you the data and tools to market your games effectively. So there you have it, folks. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself one of the best attribution platforms out there. And welcome back to Twig82. Next article, Valorant and Twitch build symbiotic relationship of success. So according to VentureBeat, fans watched 334 million hours of Valorant on Twitch last month. Riot did this by getting select streamers into the Valorant closed beta. The trick, however, was that if people watched those live streams while logged into Twitch and had a Riot account, they could also get a chance to get into the closed beta. So this mechanism to provide rewards for Twitch viewers from their streamers is called a Twitch drop. And in the case of Valorant, this worked extremely well, driving mass awareness as Valorant hit a peak of 1.7 million concurrent viewers on April 7th. So it was also noted that Twitch gaming content was also up 98% from 750 million hours watched to 1,491 million hours watched. And they attribute that largely to the impact of coronavirus. So my take on this is that influencers in particular have definitely become the new marketing, at least for PC and console games. 
We've also seen how viral activities leveraging Twitch drove Tarkov to be a top stream game earlier this year, and we've covered that and talked about that. But now with beta key drops in Valorant, you got to think that at least for PC and console, this is Twitch influencers, Twitch drops. This is basically the new marketing for PC console. For us in the mobile gaming space, this hasn't quite hit us as much because few mobile games are watched on Twitch, but definitely for PC console, this is clearly one of the most, if not the most effective channel for marketing new games from here on out. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is just great marketing for a very core game. And I think it got like mass market attention for a pretty niche type game. So the question really is whether they got their bang for their buck from, uh, from Amazon's perspective. I mean, I have to imagine that they were successful, but I'm not really quite sure if they drove, you know, prime uh, membership, which is their ultimate goal. And the ultimate, the goal of like gaming in general for Amazon is to continue to drive prime. Right. And, and to, and Twitch acquisition was also to drive prime to that 18 to 44 year old demo, or that's like one of their primary goals. And cause, cause certainly, as I said, many times, like Twitch doesn't make money for them. Right. It's a big loser for them. But uh, so this type of activity where they just blow up with these type of games is, is all good for them in terms of building expectations. And, and as a, as an anecdote, like my, did I say this last time? I can't remember, but my daughter convinced me to sync up our, her, uh, my prime account with GTA. Cause she's been playing GTA with her friends over this crazy break, but, um, and she got like a million dollars of in-game currency, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're doing some smart stuff with driving, um, prime and that is the ultimate goal uh and then what is oh i think we probably will see this exact same kind of uh, of marketing activity with things like rainbow six siege uh that's coming out again it's actually not called siege but the new one this year overwatch 2 will probably do this and even call of duty might like might actually get on on, on this bandwagon so we'll probably see this continue throughout for the next couple of years i would imagine yeah also nuts so this was kind of a last minute change um, they didn't really intend it to do like this type of launch until COVID happened. So they likely got a bump due to COVID that, that just fueled that frenzy even more. Um, but I think like the biggest net positive for the strategy is just how organically they got a ton of broad reaching streamers to play the game. Many of these streamers they didn't even have to pay for. Uh, like you just compare this strategy to Apex's or to Warzone strategy with that like surprise launch and pay millions to top streamers. Um, Riot's managed to actually create a much more sustained viewership, which I think is a much better indicator of success. They also clearly made Twitch and Amazon cozier with them. Um, overall, I think this can only work if you've really nailed the fundamentals as much as they have. So I think uh, kudos to that team and of course kudos to Paul Beleza. Uh, they really nailed those CSGO fundamentals um, and really carved out an audience away from CSGO. All right, the last article. Um, Ubisoft says 11 games sold over 10 million copies each in the PS4, Xbox One era. Um, so Ubisoft reported earnings with basically this blurb about they've sold 11 games. And most of them are either Assassin's, it's Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Tom, uh, Division, uh, Rainbow Six, Ghost Recon, and Watch Dogs. I'm actually really surprised that Watch Dogs sold that many, particularly Watch Dogs 2. But anyway, whatever. So... I guess the only thing really to talk about here is kind of uh, the issue of scale with Ubisoft, something that I've been very critical of them 
before. The only reason you do this in a press release is basically to show Wall Street that you guys that you have big titles because they're competing against Sony. Sorry, yeah, Sony, but they're also competing against Activision, EA, Take Two, which which have just these BMF franchises that do twenty million, twenty five million a year, you know, lifetime for each of the games that they release. Meanwhile, Ubisoft is kind of known as a company that has much smaller uh, game, you know, games that they, they come out with on a regular basis. So they're basically just trying to prove to Wall Street that they have scale. Now, this is what gets me more excited about UB going forward, but it also makes, makes the biggest risk for them to some degree is that their franchises just don't scale beyond that, you know, 10 million mark um, as much as the other ones. So anyway, um, but the issue here is also that Ubisoft actually reported that the fact that they are um, reducing guidance for the year, which didn't hurt them too much, but uh, but they, they they have some risks with delays of some of their games this year. My expectations is they'll probably delay uh, Watch Dogs um, and and or uh, Gods and Monsters. So my my opinion has not changed on this company. They they despite they're known as kind of one of the most innovative companies in the space on a game development side the reality of it is is that they make a lot of bets that should never be made like something like gods and monsters is a game that should never have been green light because it's just not a big enough audience for to justify the cost of building it something like steep you know any of their racing games all their stuff doesn't make any sense and they should be doubling down and bigging big making bigger franchises so investing in these big games in order to scale and to become more profitable because they are the least profitable uh, um, company in the group, uh, per se. And they have like the same amount of developers as EA and Activision, but make half as much revenue. So anyway, that's the issue that they have to do. And the reason that they put out these press releases is to try to convince Wall Street otherwise. So that's the purpose of this press release, in my opinion. Anyway, Adam? Yeah, um, one note when we're looking at these 10 million copies things, um, they're looking at life to date. And I think they drop many of these games down significantly in price over time. Um, that's why I think you're looking at like Watch Dogs, um, especially things like Division Two. Division Two actually dropped to five dollars in the base game within the first year of its launch. Right, like the cumulative ASP of that game was easily one of the worst for titles released. Really, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it dropped, but I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, so like they they were really trying to sell Division Two, um, and I think they was all trying to, you know, do prep for their recent expansion. But yeah, they um, they took a huge hit on revenue. And I think in general, like sometimes it's very misleading to look at units only on consoles. I hundred percent agree. Um, yeah, and I agree with you. Just the their delayed roadmap is only going to get worse because of COVID. Um, but. Uh, mostly for me, when I was looking at this, I was just looking at the Rainbow Six Siege and Division Two comments. Um, Siege was actually up 26% in player returning investment, which is Ubisoft's kind of way of looking at um, ARPU of ARPDAO, ARPU of players. Um, and Division Two, they're they're singing praises, which I definitely find interesting because they did that expansion. They say very strong recovery in Q4 with net bookings comparable to those for Assassin's Creed Odyssey after 13 months. See these so i don't know <laughs> that's like that the, the, the biggest bullshit metric ever right that is it's yeah. a meaningless metric it's so funny how they do that um, yeah so 
Wait, is that positive or is that negative, right? Yeah, like, knows? I'm playing the expansion now. Who the hell knows? Yeah, I don't know. And I'd like to know, you know, Ubisoft just tell me, like, is Division 2, like, sustaining their player base? Is it, um, like, do they actually see another year of Division 2 or are they now going to have to move to Division 3? I don't know. Well, I mean, they, 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 the Season 2 is going to start any day now, right? Like, next couple of weeks. And so um, I'm actually, I, as I said last time, I think I'm engaged. I think I think they're doing a good job of keeping things active and things to do and stuff but the meta is not you know the, the meta is not working for me in terms of progression but but overall i'm, I'm engaged so i think it's cool yeah. i actually switched from console to pc on this expansion and oh my god <laughs> pc is so much better for this game oh god yes oh my lord everything yeah. about it is better once you get used to the controls yeah um i will say kind of overall about ubi like Everyone, I, I try not to talk about earnings because I don't want to conflict with my old, my, my real business. But, um, but overall, everyone in this space was super positive from EA, Activision, Glue, Zynga. We haven't seen for Take Two yet, but everyone's been really positive. Ubisoft was the only one that came off with a little bit negative. I mean, EA was conservative and, and, and cautious, but Ubisoft basically guided their, guided their earnings down for the year. And that's, that was not, consistent with the rest and most of these games have been delayed out of last year right so it's not a good look for them honestly um this last uh, earnings release um so i mean that's kind of like the, the the background here is that COVID is improving everybody's bottom line right now and and revenues um and it's certainly improving helping ubisoft but uh they have other issues within that company in terms of executing against the games they have in their pipeline right? yeah. that they need to i think out. it's helping everybody who has existing live games that they can monetize it's hurting everybody who's trying to release a massive game this year right right right, right. <laughs> no, that, that, yeah no you're right that's that is definitely part of it but it's also ubisoft's inability to execute against their franchises the way every other publisher is executing you know, so anyway, I, it's a whole other thing which I don't want to talk about. So we'll see how it, how, how it all works out. I'm excited for Division, and I'm actually excited to see what they do with Rainbow Six. Six, uh, dang it, I forgot the name of it. Quarantine. The, quarantine. Yeah, Quarantine, the, the the co-op version of it. Yeah, that's yeah, because that's going to be like more Ghost Recony, right? Yeah. Like it's not a PvP thing, isn't it? Right, right, uh, exactly. And so uh, that's the type of game I can get into. But oh, and I forgot to say, oh my God, I've been playing. Call of Duty. We, yeah. did, did we talk about this already? No. Yeah. So, but I've, I'm actually competitive because see what they've done now is that you 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 sync up. Sorry, you you match up with people that are playing consoles. So I'm on PC, so I have an inherent advantage, right? So I'm actually competitive with good players on console, right? And so I get in there, and their and their and their engine of getting people together seems to be far more improved. So I feel like a rock star, dude. I'm awesome. And uh, 50% win rate. All right. <laughs> I, I, I am up there. I'm, I, I am top three or four every time. And I think, again, because I'm getting synced up with people that are on console, <laughs> so I have this huge advantage. It's awesome. And so I've been playing with my brother, and, and it's, been, it's been a lot of fun, dude. I like it. I like it a yeah, lot. Matchmaking really helps. Yep. Yeah, I, I just haven't done it in so long because the last time I did it, I was getting my ass handed to me. So it's really nice to be actually competitive again even though it's a little bit fake and faux, but I, I'll take it. All right, take we'll it see how long it takes until you go back to Division 2. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Division 2 is the jam. <laughs> Anyways, I think we're done. All right, we're done here. All right. Have a good week, later. guys. Bye. All right. See you.